welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today with me, is, with, as my co-host, is my dad, John Moscow. And we are very, very excited to be talking with Dr. Dennis O'Flynn, who's Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Pacific in Stockton, California, and Director of the Pacific World History Institute. Dr. Flynn has been studying silver history and global history for 50 years. Among his many recent writings is Silver, Globalization, and Capitalism, a chapter in Capitalisms Towards a Global History. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you. So what I'd like to do first is to start with, I'm a history teacher. Uh, I teach 10th grade global history at a public high school here in New York. And I'd like to start with the story that I've been doing for the last, let's say, 15 years or so. And I want you to tell me what is right about the story and don't hold back. Tell me also what I have wrong about the story. So the story, as I've been telling the 15-year-olds, is after 1492, when the Spanish and, and more generally the Europeans come to the New World, they find some gold and lots of silver. This silver comes back to Europe and it creates inflation. And this inflation disrupts the feudal system or the feudal arrangement because the lords can no longer, because it's sort of a fixed economy, um, the, the lords can no longer afford the rising prices in the markets and they can't sustain the manors anymore. So they let the serfs go. Serfs become free labor. The land becomes free to be bought and sold. And the serfs are hired back as labor. And, and that's how you get capitalism. So that's that's my story. And I want you now, and, and you have as much time as you want. Tell us what the real story is. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the traditional story. And when I started this, uh, not quite 50 years, uh, in the fall of 2024, it will have been 50 years. <laughs> but, uh, but when I uh, began reading about this in the uh, 70s, I uh, wrote a PhD dissertation on it, the Spanish Price Revolution. And that, that basically was the story. That basically was the story. Uh, uh, and, and it turns out that even my own PhD dissertation, uh, which had to do with uh, monetary approach to the balance of payments, which at the time was a, a new theory, uh, and I applied it to the case of a Spanish price revolution. But, uh, but anyway, I had already finished the dissertation, and I was a, a young assistant professor at University of the Pacific. And, but the story just, you know, it didn't hang. I mean, and, and I had read so much, because the literature is very large. It dates to the 16th century, actually. And, and so... Uh, every once in a while, there'd be a, a mention of uh, Asia because the whole story was Euro Eurocentric. I mean, in, in extreme, but all the stories, all the history was Eurocentric. And, and this one, uh, uh, no exception. And so they would, uh, they, they, they would say there might be a footnote every once in a while about uh, treasure, I, I put in quotes, uh, because they were really uh, combining gold and silver, which is huge mistake, number one, right there. Uh, they're separate products. 
and they have to be analyzed uh, distinctly. And anyway, uh, and so what, what the standard story, I started reading and then uh, you, I really had to look hard because so what, what is their explanation in this little footnote every uh, blue mm-hmm. moon about Asia? And mm-hmm. here, here's the standard story. So the standard story is, okay, you've got dynamism in Europe, right? That's still the story. You've got dynamism in Europe, and you've got these, uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not very much. Uh, you've got this static Asia, this mysterious East, strange people. And, <clears throat> and they are not dynamic. <clears throat> They're stuck in the mud. <clears throat> and so... <clears throat> The Europeans do like their products, though, the silks and ceramics and spices and so on, and had been trading for quite some time, <clears throat> long before uh, Columbus. And, and so the idea was the dynamism, the demand sides coming from Europeans, and, and, and therefore they're buying a lot of, quote, Asian products. And, but these... But these stuck-in-the-mud Asian people uh, are not reciprocating. They're not buying European products. And therefore, the, the treasure, the uh, monetary substances flow to Asia as a, a balancing item. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, balance of trade issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so the money is, the, the cause is in the, what economists still call the real sector, and, and the monetary sector is the response to that. Well, it turns out I realized quite early in the 80s, I said, you know what? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, and at the time, I know at conferences, I got some raised eyebrows because <laughs> I'd say to people, I'd, I'd say, that is flat wrong, absolutely incorrect. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, usually academics are saying, well, look at it this way versus mm-hmm. look at it this way. I say, look at it any way you want. It's flat wrong. Mm-hmm. And they say, okay, why do you say that? I say, because if, if your argument made sense, the balance of, uh, imbalance of trade, the trade deficit from a European point of view, then various mon- monetary substances would have been going to Asia. And no such thing happened whatsoever. In fact, what was happening was silver was going to, quote, Asia, number one, and gold was coming back the opposite direction. And so the, this lumping them together, I mean, mm. you can't even see, you, you, it makes, the history is totally inconsistent. Mm-hmm. The empirical evidence by historians uh, uh, demonstrates that that's false. But they're so focused on Europe that they're considering Asia as being this peripheral, who cares, uh, not important kind of place. And so, and so, uh, yeah. And by the way, then I start looking into it. And in this, is, I'm in the 80s now. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. I'm, now I'm reading and I'm saying, who, where's the second biggest silver production area on planet Earth? Now, obviously, Spanish America, meaning uh, New Spain, which now we call Mexico, uh, and, uh, and uh, Upper Peru, 
what's now Bolivia mainly, Potosí. But, uh, but anyway, Japan is producing 50% as much silver in the 16th and 17th century as all of Spanish America. So it, it and, and the silver is going, by the way, not to Asia, but mainly to China, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly to China. And so it's not even a Europe-Asia issue to begin with. It's a, it's a global issue. And last time I checked, Japan is considered part of Asia. <laughs> so how, you know, how in the world does this fit into this story? It doesn't. Mm -hmm. and, and so what are the Europeans doing? The Portuguese initially, and then later the Dutch, they are uh, middlemen, basically middlemen, because the main silver producing areas in the world are Spanish America and Japan. The main market is uh, China, or markets, I should say, because I don't even want to look at China as a really as an entity. I mean, there are various regions of China and so on, mm -hmm. but markets in, in, in China. And so, and not only that, but what got totally left out of the picture and, and probably what I'm most uh, well known for is that uh, the Pacific trade, the Pacific is completely out of the picture, but this is preposterous because the Spaniards, the, the silver was Spanish American silver, all right. And it was coming over the Atlantic. Most of it, maybe two thirds of it is coming over the Atlantic. And of course the Spaniards lose control of it uh, immediately. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't go to Asia. I mean, sorry, it doesn't go to Europe. It goes through Europe, right? And so, and it's going on, on to uh, China. Well, uh, and the Spaniards didn't have access to the links between uh, Europe and China. And so their only direct access to uh, uh, the Chinese marketplace was over the Pacific. And so that's where the founding of Manila in 1571 uh, becomes uh, the birth of globalization. And uh, maybe I should stop now because the, uh, the birth of globalization is something I'd like to talk about, but I don't want to get too far off of your uh, question, Lev. Yeah, no, that, that's very, that's great. It's, it's very clear. And yeah, this, this summer I, I read, I read, uh... I think it was an article, a JSTOR article. Oh, not JSTOR, it's called yeah, Born with a Silver Spoon. I think that was your article about the birth That's of the 95 one, yeah. Yeah. So and that was that was fantastic. And I think that was my introduction to your work. But I, I guess I just have one small question. When the money comes, the, the, sorry, when the silver comes from, from New Spain, across the Atlantic, into Europe, what actually happens to it next? Who who does have the links to um, to China? Well, uh, I think this is one of the reasons that you know it's so obvious once you look at it from a global point of view. Uh, but but people were very Eurocentric, and so it turns out that uh, some of that silver, well. The short answer to your question is silver was going through, and this is not hyperbole, silver was going through every single trade route mm. that existed, all of them. 
It went through the uh, Mediterranean. It went through the Baltic. The Dutch, of course, were, were huge in, in the silver trade. But Arthur Atman uh, wrote several small books uh, uh, where he, and he had all the, he has Russian and all these Eastern European language skills and so on and could read all the original documents. He claimed that uh, about 2 million pesos per year, which is about 50 tons of silver, uh, were going through the Baltic. And wow. then it, in the Baltic, and some of it's going into Russia and through Russia, it's going down into the Ottoman Empire, it's going across the Silk Roads. Uh, so every single trade route was carrying silver going uh, the, the portion that went through Europe uh, was go was was just continuing on, and went to uh, uh, ultimately, mostly not entirely to China to China, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so the when Arturo Heraldas and I started working together, and now now we're in the nineties, the early nineties, nineteen nineties, when he joined the faculty. I said, well, we got to find out, you know, what the hell is going on in China? I mean, and this goes on, by the way, this isn't just for a few decades or something. This goes on for centuries. Mm -hmm. goes, as a matter of fact, it went on into the 20th century. Uh, wow. and, and, so, uh, and so what's going on in China? And, and, Fortunately for us, because neither one of us know any Asian languages at all, but by the by the early '90s, and certainly in the since the early '90s, uh, everybody wants their research to be as widely disseminated as possible. And so, how do you do that these days? English, or at least European languages. And especially English, and so we had access to that in Europe. And and Arturo has the all the uh, Latin-based languages, and so uh, we we look into this, and here it is, plain as day, as plain as day, what ha what actually happened, and why this mm. is going overwhelmingly to China, and 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 so here's how the story goes. Uh, it's amazing. It's just an amazing story. So the the Chinese had invented. You know, there are endless books on this. Uh, Chinese had invented everything, and, and, and not everything, but I mean a lot, uh, mm -hmm. including paper and including paper monies. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, uh, the Chinese had a sometimes well-functioning, sometimes not well-functioning paper money system like a thousand years ago. And so way before Europeans, I mean, way before. And... And it turns out that, in effect, they had paper money, but it was, in a sense, backed by silver. They were, they were basically on a silver standard, right? They did not have silver money, but it was, but, but the paper, uh, uh, and, and so, and it turns out that the, the Chinese, of course, over those very long periods of time, was attacked a number of times and overthrown <laughs> dynasties uh, several times. And the attacks normally came from the north. That's why the Great Wall is, is there, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so they're under attack. This is in the 15th century. This is before Columbus. And specifically, I'm talking about the 1430s. Uh, so in, in, in the 1430, approximately, uh, they're under attack again, right? And, and, and it's serious. And so what lengths would you go to defend yourself? And the answer is, uh, uh, well, how big is your imagination, right? Mm -hmm. You'll do whatever, and including running the printing press. And so uh, it's kind of a classic, you know, in, in Germany uh, after World War I was the famous hyperinflation, you know, they're running the printing press so, so rapidly that they're only printing on one side of the, of the paper money. Uh, and of course, they, the value of the money goes to zero hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what happened in, in China. And so, and so what happens, and, and people think, oh, well, the government made a decision. No, the government didn't make a decision. The, the private sector, they got to, in order to function, you've no longer got, the paper money is worthless. I mean, literally mm. worthless. And so how are you going to do business? Well, they're already on a silver standard, and so they, they go to the hard stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, and so think about this, they've got 25% of the world's population at the time, which is a much higher percentage than today. And, and they're very sophisticated, you know, the Eurocentrism, forget that. They've got the most sophisticated, biggest economy by far in, in the world. Make, make the, the Europeans were, were small, small fry compared with them. Mm. And, and. So they're going to the hard stuff. Well, think about that. What the standard econ, even standard econ, which I reject most of it, but a standard econ says that if a quarter of the world's population, and if you throw in the tributary states, you're talking maybe 40% of the world's population, if there's a huge surge in demand for any product, doesn't matter what, it could be peanuts or anything, uh, there's going to be an increase in the price of, of that product, right? And that's what happened. And so, so uh, from the 1430 on, uh, the, the market value of silver was twice as high in China as it was elsewhere in Chinese markets. Mm. And the indicator of that, a lot of people misunderstand when I make this point, but the bimetallic ratios show that the value of silver in, in China, the bimetallic ratio was, say, uh, six to one, uh, which means that uh, gold was six times more valuable than silver. So okay. you, you needed six, uh, six pieces of silver to buy one, six ounces, let's say, of silver to buy one ounce of gold. Fine. What is it elsewhere? Well, more like 12 to one, say, in Europe. Well, okay, so how about, why am I going to buy an ounce of gold with 12 ounces of silver in Europe when I can take that 12 ounces and take it to China and get two units of gold, right? Uh, now, that's just one indicator, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that silver was way, 
double the value in China as elsewhere. And so the reason it went there had nothing to do with balance of trade deficit or all. That's a bunch of nonsense. Trade was balanced. Uh, silver was a commodity like any other commodity. Mm. And silver went to its, to its uh, best market like, just like today it would. It happens all the time. And so it's just arbitrage. And so, and it turns out that uh, uh, now I'd like to make a, a, a advertisement for a recent chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. at, but, but I think it's really interesting and cool because, you know, I had done all this work on the 16th century. Okay, fine. But the market value of silver was twice as high as elsewhere in 1430. I mean, mm. this is uh, three quarters of a century before Columbus, practically, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and I had been reading uh, works, but I had, didn't have expertise and still don't. But, but I had been reading works about uh, the 15th century, uh, you know, because there was a big boom in uh, silver mining uh, in Europe. Uh, Martin Luther's father worked in, in those silver mines. The Fuggers and these, these incredibly rich Europeans, they got rich off of these silver mines mm. uh, in, in Europe. And so, and I had uh, been reading the work of uh, Jeanette Grollo. She's at Lehman College, by the way. And uh, oh, wow. Uh, your neighbor. And yeah. And so she has a book, and I'm looking at the, when was it, 2019, called The Underground Wealth of Nations. Mm. And uh, so she, she has tremendous expertise on these Middle Ages and does archival work and all kinds of things. And, and, so, and so, and I've lectured in her classes via Zoom and occasionally in person uh, for years. And so... Because of, of her work, and I was invited to a conference in southern Germany, uh, in Regensburg, and they so they, they had this conference, uh, all historians, but they were all doing Middle Ages. And I, I, they invited me to go there, and I said, I said, yeah, I mean, I'd love to come, and I've never been there and all that, but... Uh, I don't know anything about the Middle Ages, really. Mm. And I said, but, uh, and the, but they were going to pay the way and so on. So I say, okay. Mm. And I say, well, here, here's, this is a pretty wild uh, argument, but I'm going to argue that, that the double the value of silver in China stimulated the European uh, silver production before Columbus in the 15th century. And so I, mm -hmm. I went there and gave, gave, gave the, paper is all, of course, like I always do, based on secondary sources, because I don't have skills to, to do the uh, primary source research. And uh, they took it seriously. I mean, and they published it, and uh, it's called something 15th century European silver and Chinese end markets. Mm -hmm. And so, so anyway, this silver thing was going on before the the European discovery of the Americas, and so there's a continuity going on, and and so, but 
as I had mentioned, we had done a lot of work on the Pacific. And in fact, I, I organized, uh, I think, four international conferences on instead of Atlantic studies, fine. But what about Pacific studies, right? As a coherent, not the North Pacific or the islands mm -hmm. or whatever, all of it. And, and that's just, if you look at world maps, 99% of them, the Pacific doesn't exist, right? It's, it's on yeah. both ends of the map, it's nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and intellectually, that's the case, uh, right? Is, is that people don't even, it's not part of their consciousness. They're always saying Atlantic, Atlantic. Well, of course, the Atlantic was important, but hello, the, the, you know, the Pacific uh, has, has been around and a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, for for a long long time and so uh, it 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 turns out working with Arturo Geraldes in the 90s and a little bit after that uh, we started looking at things and we said well okay now, what what I told Arturo just the economist in me is, is that I say okay so my my instinct is that all the silver goes pouring into China and I don't care how big the market is uh, uh, silver, by the way, is very durable, which is one of the reasons it's good for monies. Uh, and it accumulates, right? And so it's not like bread. You, you take it, eat it, it's gone. No, it sticks around. And so the stock of silver had uh, built up, would eventually build up in China. Yes, there's wear and tear and some loss, but it's very durable. And so the market value of that silver is going to end up uh, equilibrating around the world, and but I don't know how long it takes. And when we look at the bimetallic ratios, it turns out that uh, 1640 is what it turns out to be. Wow! Is that by 1640 the bimetallic ratios e equilibrate all over the world? Adam Smith in the Wealth of Nations has uh, it's almost 80 pages called a digression on silver, and he talks about this and the importance of China and everything. We it's just that in the late 19th through the 20th century, we had what I call historical amnesia, right? Everybody knew the, about China and silver and things like that in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And then we get into the Industrial Revolution and the concentration on nation states and so forth. And, and we get historical amnesia with respect to the global aspects. Dennis, this is great. I have a couple very, you know, sort of small questions. Um, one is when you're talking about the silver coming from the the Americas, is it in the form of uh, bullion or in cur a currency? Both. Okay, that's Both. one question. The second question is: so by the middle of the 17th century, because you you don't have this this chance for arbitrage anymore, does that sort of end? The profitability of the European middlemen? It does. It does. And, and then this is when, when it starts getting interesting. And it turns out Arturo uh, Heraldes, my, my uh, historian colleague, uh, he says that, and sure enough, around the 1640s, uh, you know, this stimulated this trade. And, and one thing I, I, it's very important that I make this point because I forget to sometimes is that we were known, we're known as the silver guys, right, in world history uh, 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 circles. But I'm saying, look, am I saying 
that there wasn't arbitrage of the Chinese silks, the ceramics, the uh, spices not from China, and etc. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. And so all the stuff, well, the Europeans had all the profit, prove it. I've never seen a shred of evidence to indicate that that's the case, right? Did, did they profit handsomely? Yes. Did the Asian traders profit handsomely? Yes. Which was bigger? I don't know. Nobody knows because uh, there's no empirical evidence for that as far as I know. So, so I don't want to, people say, oh, you're making silver is this magical commodity that is, is so important. No, it's a regular, it's a regular commodity, and, mm -hmm. but it's a window into uh, other commodities. So here's, here's the, the, the birth of globalization. This, is, this to me is, is, even when Arturo and I were doing it, we, we couldn't hardly believe it because we didn't go into the birth of globalization argument with any preconceptions. We hadn't really thought about it that much, really. But it turns out that the ships, especially the Manila galleons, but it, it was true over the Atlantic as well and around the Cape and all the rest of it. Uh, but not only did they bring sil silver, but they brought uh, American plants. Uh, it turns out that maybe as much as half of all the calories generated worldwide that are fed to humans and and, and domestic animals uh, came from the Americas. They never existed uh, elsewhere, mm -hmm. right? And so the Americas had been had been isolated from Afro Eurasia for more than 10,000 years. Well, why? Global warming, right? The Holocene. So global warming, and we talk about the, the uh, rising oceans. You're in New York, I'm in San Francisco. We look out the window and see it, right? Yeah. And, and we're, we're, we're saying, oh my God, what if this rises by five feet? Uh, well, try three, 400 feet. Wow, uh, wow. That's what happened. And so, now, not all at once, obviously, but uh, mm -hmm. and so it, it isolated the Americas. So Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere, right? The Americas is isolated from the Afro-Eurasian for over 10,000 years. Well, as a result of that, you get different crops, different animals. The people are not aware of each other at all, either direction and so on. And so when the Europeans come over, and then they finally make the connection across the, the uh, Pacific. But they're saying, wait a minute, Manila was, was founded in 1571 as a Spanish entrepot. But Magellan had, had uh, crossed in 1521. That was 50 years earlier. And what happened was, the, and by the way, Magellan's uh, trip, which was a disaster, he was killed. Uh, deserved it too, uh, in, in uh, Western Pacific, in the Asian waters. And, and that terrible disaster, only one ship finally made it back and it made a profit on, on, on its trade. So, mm. so naturally, the Spanish and everybody else, they're saying, whoa, this crossing the Pacific, you know, we already know that there's the profits there. The problem is they couldn't get back because of the currents and the, and the winds and the, and the currents, they tried repeatedly to come back 
uh, and couldn't do it. It was, it was impossible. And finally, in, in 1565, Urdaneta went up all the way off of the Japanese coast and came down the Pacific Northwest, uh, where I'm from. Uh, actually, I call it now the Pacific Northeast. Uh, Japan <laughs> is the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah. Hawaii is west of, of San Francisco, and, mm -hmm. and Asia is west of yeah. <laughs> Hawaii. So why am I going to adopt a, a suburb of London as my reference point, right? Uh, so to me, uh, the Europeans are in the uh, either the Middle East or the Far East, and, and <laughs> the Asians are in the uh, Far West. Mm. Uh, but anyway, they, so the Manila galleons come all the way down, and uh, it's a long, long voyage, but with the currents, ships still use that, uh, by the way, they, the same routes because it saves on fuel. You go a lot farther, but it saves on fuel, and you can go a lot faster. And so, and they didn't have motors, right? So they had to, to go with the currents and the winds. So the Manila galleons uh, operated for 250 years. Up until 1815, they were, the Spaniards operated those. And they carried these, uh, of course, silver always going out. But, but uh, they also carried the American plants. So that, now the story there, okay. These American plants caused population explosions everywhere in the world, Europe too, but not like in China. Because what, what happened in, in China, just three crops, the sweet potato, peanut, and maize, corn, uh, it took a long time. It was gradual, but it caused uh, not only a population explosion in China, the geographical boundaries of China doubled in the 18th century, doubled. Wow. So all of the stuff that I had read, you know, in graduate school or whatever about, oh, backward, stagnant China. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> the population nearly tripled and, and the, the land mass doubled because these American plants allowed the Chinese to survive. They were all concentrated in the rice growing and wheat growing areas because you couldn't survive in the hilly uh, rainy, you know, mountainous areas, but with the American plants, they could. And so I said to Arturo in the, in the, uh, nineties again, I said, you know what, you're getting this demographic explosion in China due not entirely, but largely to American plants. And they've already got this, this huge demand for silver I'll bet you the bimetallic ratios are going to show that, that as the population grows, it's going to split again and there's going to be a premium in China. And there was. By the year 1700, it widens up, this time not double, but 50% higher. Mm. But 50% higher than anywhere else and with much more highly developed uh, transportation networks globally, that's a big deal. And so that's a, new, a sort of a new arbitrage opportunity. That's right. And so we, we called it, we've, we've written about this, we call it cycles of silver. And we're, we're tying it to the, to the uh, ecological, demographic, right? So economic history should not be looked at by itself. It can't be over, over mm -hmm. these periods of time. They're all intertwined. 
And, and so when you look at it that way, you say, well, that makes perfect sense. And, and uh, most of the, in the 18th century, uh, by the way, the 18th century Spanish American silver production was uh, as big or bigger than the 16th and 17th centuries combined. And, and this time it's still coming out of upper Peru, uh, uh, today Bolivia and that area, but, but it was, uh, but most of it was from New Spain, Mexico. And, wow. and then in the 19th century, and then it becomes the, a lot of it was, uh, in, uh, Mexican pesos. Matter of fact, the Mexican peso became the dominant, I, I would say the Mexican peso in the 18th century, or at least the second half of the 18th century was more dominant as a world currency than the U S dollar today. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 uh, everywhere, er, er, everybody. In fact, the, the, the American dollar was modeled on it. The, our dollar sign, look on mm -hmm, the back mm -hmm. of the, the pesos. Those are the pillars and, and, uh, of, of the, uh, the peso, the Spanish peso, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the weight was the same, the, the, the content was the same. And in fact, Mexican pesos in, in uh, the, uh, the first half of the 19th century were the dominant money in, in the United States as well, wow. in North America. I'm so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, well, I'm, I, I know I'm talking 100 miles an hour and uh, maybe I should give you a chance to, to redirect. Well, yeah, not redirect, but I wanted to go back um, to um, following up on Lev's question about um, the form that the silver went, and then this ties to the Manila galleons as well. Mm -hmm. So the silver would come from Acapulco, and it would go the route you described, and it would get to Manila, and mm -hmm. then, uh, it would get to China. What happened then? Did it, because the government, I guess, needed the currency, did it all go to the government to be turned into currency? Or no. did it also go to merchants and tied in with this is that we know that the Manila galleons brought back, you know, lots of Chinese goodies. So mm -hmm. I'm curious sort of just the mechanics of, of how the silver um, worked once it got to China. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is that, uh, that during the period of time, during the centuries we're talking about, the Chinese never minted silver coins at all. And in fact, I should mention that, uh, that a, a gentleman, you might want to interview him sometime, uh, Richard Von Glan at UCLA, uh, he, he has tremendous, uh, probably the most knowledgeable person about Chinese monetary history in the world. And he's written about this. Anyway, the... The, the silver that came in uh, to China was not minted. It, first of all, it, went, it was entirely the private sector. The government tried to stop it. So not only was it not going into the coffers of, 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 of the Chinese government as, as a primary driver, it was the other way around. It was a private sector uh, issue. And, and so they tried to stop this, this what, what Richard von Glan and, and Arturo and I called the silverization of China, uh, but they couldn't stop it. And so finally, also in the late uh, 16th century, 
they threw in the towel and they said that uh, they had what was called the single whip tax reform. And they, they said that, uh, you know, not all, but most taxes uh, had to be paid in silver. So that was their initiative. No, it wasn't. They grudgingly, begrudgingly, they couldn't stop the reality of it. And so they just joined in. Uh, and some of it, some of it came in uh, coin form and some of it came, didn't. But in any case, in, in China, uh, even though they didn't have silver coins, uh, they had uh, uh, tails, uh, which is, I think, is other people say that it's, you know, more like a bar of silver, but it's not just like a bar of silver and, and it's, it's large and heavy and so on. But uh, that was their, their uh, money of account uh, was payment in tails. So it was really a private sector. So this, this whole thing, you know, uh, the old literature, a lot of it Marxist literature that says, well, you know, the Chinese were, were uh, their problem was they weren't market oriented and so on. Well, Ken Pomerantz claims in his, his book uh, that that uh, Chinese economy was closer to the free market uh, ideal than any market in Europe during the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. So uh, anyway, that's a partial answer to your question. So just to sum up, um, is your argument then that the silver, but in an indirect way, the silver coming from the Americas actually does, is the catalyst for economic development in Europe, but we sort of have the story wrong, that it's the catalyst because Europeans are making all this profit through the, the trade, silver trade with China, those arbitrage opportunities, and it's, it's not that it's remaining in Europe creating inflation, but it's creating wealth anyway. Am I getting the story right? No, I think that's I think that's fair enough. Uh, and and I know in the in the uh, chapter that you read, uh, the one in the capitalism's book, uh, I, I spend several uh, pages talking about uh, Earl J. Hamilton and 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 these people in the older literature, right? And they said, they came in and they said, well, the inflation and that got profits. Well, that turns out not to even be correct. It's empirically incorrect. And that's been shown in the literature, but people repeat it anyway. And, and, uh, uh, and, and so, uh, let me see, where was I going with this? They made the argument that the silver came and the reason for the price revolution is because, because the stock of money increased there. Mm, that's not it. Mm -hmm. That's not it, right? Mm -hmm. It continued on. Now, the, the, the uh, scholars today will argue with me, will argue with each other, exactly what proportion stayed in Europe and what proportion went to China and what proportion went to India, blah, 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 the rest of the world. And the answer is that people make all kinds of arguments about it. And we don't know. And so, uh, but we could know. And the way we could know, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing a theory book right now. I'm almost done with it. And it's a non-standard econ. It has to do with accumulation, which standard e economics doesn't do. 
mm, accumulation mm. at all. Uh, but and so, but I'm in this history. It's all about accumulation, right? And so, the the old literature they said, well, when the silver came and and accumulated in in Spain and other countries, caused profits, caused the birth of capitalism, uh, and then. Hamilton made this, made the argument. They said, but when it went to abstract Asia, well, that stimulated too. I'm saying, oh, that's that's an interesting bit of logic. You're saying that when it accumulates, it stimulates capitalism, and and when it leaves, it and and isn't accumulated, it also stimulates capitalism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, come on, uh, uh, take your pick, but. But it, but on the other hand, I think you're right in that this birth of global trade stuff. I mean, it really was truly global, and and the opportunities were immense, and population was exploding because of the plants and and all of this stuff going on. Obviously, slavery uh, involved in it, but I mean, so many things. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, wealth was being created. But was it exclusively European? Hell no. Why would you say that? You know, mm -hmm. because you got your Eurocentric blinders on and, and you're thinking that the rest of the world is irrelevant, which is what uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein and people like that, that's what he argued. He was completely wrong. You know, you've got, you've, you've got these theoretical, uh, uh, political ideas but uh, you know give me give me the historians so in my model it focuses on accumulation and so what i'm trying to convince historians now is i'm uh, and patrick manning and i were trying to push this and we still are uh, if we could get the funding you need to go into the archives and the records are there wealth records exist right their their probate record. I mean, all kinds of records, tax records, uh, all kinds of records, and you could go in there and find out how much silver different kinds of people were holding at specific points in time, and at least make an extrapolation from that about how much silver was being held uh, in this region versus that region. There's no other way to do it, to my knowledge. It, it's, it has to be the historian. It has to be the people who can get, you know, archaeologists also, by the way, they're involved in this, but that's physical evidence, right? And, and uh, there's a lot of it. There, there are ships, including in China, that uh, they've, they're dredging out and, and getting the silver and opening new museums about this. Uh, but in, 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 the, in the, the historians have access to the, the, all of these records, right, of what people owned, when, exactly, and over time, it would be possible, what I call it, is I say, everybody talks about GDP, GDP, economists, you know, nonstop GDP. I say, I'm interested in GDW, wealth. Is what place on earth has an estimate of GDW? Mm. Zero. Mm. You you know, you can have GDP going up, there are wars going on, people are actually destroying wealth. That's the whole point of the weapons. 
and yet GDP is producing them, and they're saying, well, we must be better off because GDP per capita is higher. Mm -hmm. Really? Tell that yeah. to the people in Gaza, right? Mm -hmm. tell, tell the Ukrainians that. Tell the Ukrainians that they're better off than they were before. I mean, come on, your common sense, right? Mm -hmm. It requires... Mm -hmm six years of PhD training at, uh, mm -hmm. in econ at MIT not to see what's right in front of your face, right? So, yeah, I mean, so this is going to be my last question because I, I have to go pick up my daughter and my dad will continue. But I guess, you know, one question that my dad and I keep running into, um, well, when we're talking to each other, is you've written that this debate is is hot and it's contested and the stakes are high and yep. we you know we keep asking ourselves why should this matter outside of the context of academia why should this matter for maybe even for public policy today and the best i argument sort of i could come up with it but i, I want you to give me what you tell me what if you think this is makes sense, but also what you would say is if the standard story is this is how Europe got rich, and if you just copy this model, then you'll get rich too. If that story turns out to be wrong, well, then the developmental path that you take will, in fact, be different. Does that make sense in terms of why this story might be so high stakes? Yes, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, what what I say is that if we could get people now, it would take forever, well beyond my lifetime, for sure. But if if you could get over time, it has to be historical. Accumulation is historical, period. End of story. <laughs> There's no such thing as accumulation without mm -hmm. history. It is mm -hmm. historical. And everything you see right now, everything you can smell, touch, measure in any fashion, uh, isn't being produced now. It, it, it's an inheritance from the past, right? Mm -hmm. That's wealth. That's accumulation. And so uh, what is the optimal distribution of wealth, for example? I don't know. Nobody knows because we don't even measure it. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even know what the wealth of the nation is, uh, right? And you'd have to do the assets, but you also have to do the liabilities, including environmental ones, right? Uh, toxic waste and so forth. People build a toxic waste facility and they say, well, GDP went up. We must be better off. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? So, so having toxic stuff around is a good idea and, and blowing things up is all, an even better idea. I mean, this, this, this doesn't make sense. And so... Uh, well, let me give you one to, because you want to go to today, and I agree. I, I did history. I do history because I want to understand today better. Mm. I mean, ultimately, and, I, I'm, and I'm mostly, I'm, and I'm mostly thinking the, the, you know, I'm mostly thinking as a history teacher because this is the kind of question the kids ask all the time: like, why is this debate at all relevant? Why bother? Yeah, why bother? Well, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you an example. I, I mean, I don't have the answer because I don't have the information. Uh, today, you, you read in the New York Times, like I do, read Krugman, read all these people, right? They're, they're saying, the economy's doing fabulous, and, and these stupid voters, these people don't even know they're better off than they were before. 
and say, really, really? Mm. You think you know how <laughs> you're going to go tell Joe Sixpack that, that he's way better off than he was 20 years ago. He'll, he'll knock your teeth down your throat, right? I mean, at the tavern, he's saying, it, it, okay, so the flows, the incomes and so forth, but they can't afford housing, right? That, this is wealth. They, they, the, the wealth distribution, maybe the wealth distribution has gotten a lot worse. And maybe these people, they can't articulate why it is they're so angry. I mean, who's going to vote for Trump, right? Mm. Well, the answer is a lot. Mm. There are a lot of angry people. Why are they angry? I suspect. I used to ask my, my students uh, before I retired from teaching. And I'd say, how many of you, I was just interested, you know, I'd say, how many of you think you're going to be better off than your parents? And, and almost all of them said no. When I was in college, everybody said yes. Mm-hmm. We assumed mm-hmm. we were going to be better off, and we were, than, 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 than our parents, significantly better off. And, and they say, no, I'm blocked out, I'm locked out. I, uh, my suspicion but is that, is that they're using these, the econ profession, everything is flows, income, expenditures those are flows those aren't accumulations right i see yeah and wealth so i understand the focus on wealth rather than on say gdp but going back why why is it important to know about the origins of globalization and the origins of capitalism if you're talking to a student today why why do they need to know that or why is it interesting for them to know that well i mean you, you can move in a number of directions uh in in answer to that the 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 one that uh, uh comes to mind immediately is that um a lot of the scholarship uh says that I mean, it's Eurocentric because the Industrial Revolution, in fact, happened first in Europe. I mean, there's no argument about that, right? Uh, and, but what a lot of historians and, and economic historians have done, because they didn't know this earlier global history, is they sort of telescoped it backwards, right? Uh, they're saying, well, it, it's because of superiority of Western civilization. It's because it's the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian traditions going back 2,000 years and, and all kinds of arguments. Uh, you know, uh, the Northern Europeans, they Protestantism was better than the Catholics because the Catholics, you know, wasted so much on their cathedrals. And I mean, all, all, all kinds of uh, arguments like that. And I'm saying, when I, when I look at it from a global point of view, I say, look, consider this possibility. Consider that from the early 19th century up until the middle of the 20th century, roughly speaking, a century and a half, that uh, the Industrial Revolution hit and certain Northwestern European powers and, uh, and, the, and the United States eventually 
became dominant, including militarily, right? And but prior to that, and after and since then, uh, we have a multipolar world. In other words, people are saying, "Oh my God." We're threatened by the yellow menace. Uh, the Chinese are, are suddenly are, are because they're successful, their economy, although it's it's in the process of uh, collapsing. But uh, you know that it's the yellow menace kind of argument. I'm saying, simmer down, simmer down. This is a return to normal, right? I mean, we had these in the 16th century. It was global. In the 17th century, it was global. Uh, there was no dominant center. 18th century, no dominant center. The Industrial Revolution <clears throat> changed that from a military point of view. And now we're back to a, a post-1950s multipolar world. Don't panic. And, and, you know, become xenophobic and denounce the Chinese and anybody, Japanese or whoever happens to be convenient at the moment. Uh, and think of this as this is a part of global history and we shouldn't be so hysterical about it. Be more rational. In um, your chapter um, that we mentioned um, before, Silver Globalization and Capitalism, is a chapter in a book called Capitalism's Plural. Correct. Um, why do you think that the editors um, included me at turn? Well, you know, when when they contacted me <clears throat> and they said that uh, they they wanted me to do a chapter in this capitalism book, <clears throat> and I said to them, right? I mean, I've published a lot of things. I don't need to publish another ch chapter or article or whatever. What for? Am I going to get a promotion from emeritus professor? And, and so I, I told him, I said, no, I, I don't think it makes sense for, for you to include me as a chapter because what I'm going to say is going to contradict what all the rest of the chapters, uh, that's my prediction. And I think it more or less does because they're talking about capitalism. And, and what I'm saying is, look, cap capitalism, that literature, you know, I know about it, uh, uh, Transition from feudalism to capitalism. Uh, it's, a, it's a Marxist and pseudo-Marxist uh, argument, Sweezy and Maurice Dobbs and, and on and on. And all of that is based on uh, Europe, not only Europe, but the nation state is the unit of analysis, right? England, people compare England to France and so forth. But but it was global trade. So what kind, of, what kind of economic systems were involved in this global trade? Slavery, uh, what you, I guess you could call serfdom, uh, free market. There, you know, every kind of, every kind of uh, economic organization was, was involved in these, in these multitude of uh, thousands of interconnections at a global level. It doesn't fit into the definition of capitalism at all. Why call it capitalism? Why not just, I call it global, globalization. I mean, what, what, what do I need? I don't think it, I think these, these uh, 
narratives that are, even when the people hope, don't want them to be, they're, they're Eurocentric. Capitalism is, is, is not helpful. I know the, the, the questions they deal with are, are, are fundamental. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying they're wrong when they come to this or that conclusion. But I just, I don't see the point. Uh, I don't think it gets us anywhere. I think it gets in our way to talk about uh, feudalism and capitalism because they were all intertwined simultaneously at a global level. Didn't have to do with Europe. So you mentioned um, the price revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the price revolution? And I think that you said that this was that the inflation that this refers to was actually going on around the world at at the time, if I remember correctly, is that right? That's right. So, so what I had what I had felt actually, uh, even while I was writing my dissertation, I think the the first little chapter I published was called something <laughs> like uh, something like inflation from a production point of view, and what I was getting at and I, I still would make this argument today, is that it turns out that during the so-called price revolution, basically up till around 1640, uh, European prices, once they're converted to what's called silver content prices, so in other words, you get rid of debasement and so on, that prices over, say, tripled, Okay. Uh, according to these various measurements. And I'm saying, well, okay, what you're basically saying then is that the market value of silver declined. In other words, if you say it takes more units of money to buy a cup of coffee, you could say, well, the price of the coffee went up double, or you can say the value of the money fell in half, or a combination of the two, right? And so my argument is that the price revolution had to do with, you've got the cost of production down here initially, you've got the market value of silver way up here, largely thanks to Chinese demand, but you've got the price of the product way above the cost of production, right? So those are super profits that financed the Spanish Empire. It financed the Shogun too, by the way, simultaneously, uh, who who unified Japan, and and so. But over time, the market value, because of accumulation of silver, the market value of silver is gradually one percent per year, something like that. Doesn't seem like much, but over a century, that's dropping the market value of silver down to one-third of what it was before, and I call that the price revolution. Did it fall also in China? Yes. And people say there was no price revolution in China. They're wrong. They say, well, what prices are, are you using? And they say, well, we're, we're, we're using the, their uh, copper prices. Well, a fall in the market value of silver doesn't mean that there's a fall in the market value of copper. Those are completely different products, right? And so my argument is that each of these monies and monetary substances need to be uh, analyzed absolutely strictly independently 
which contradicts macroeconomic uh, theory because, which I taught every semester for 40 some years. Uh, and, and so monetary theory is in macroeconomics and you combine all these monetary substances into M1, M2, M3, M4, etc., which is what is done to this day. And I'm saying, great, you keep doing that, and I guarantee you, you will never understand anything in global monetary history. It precludes you from understanding it because, as I started out, what, an hour and a half ago, the, the market for silver globally and gold and copper-based monies and cowries, those are the four great uh, biggest uh, commodity monies, they never flowed in tandem anywhere. They, they were completely, their sources were different, their end markets were different, where they ended up and accumulated, right? And so I'm saying you have to disaggregate. So to me, macroeconomics in the book I'm writing, macroeconomics, forget it. Micro, macro, I don't do that. I just do accumulation and it requires that you look at each item independently. And, and the accumulation as what I call a wealth component. So, um, um, obviously, um, when we started, when Lev and I started looking at this, um, we found ourselves sort of like overwhelmed by the amount of writing. Um, oh, yeah. Um, the price revolution, which I at any rate had never even heard of before. Well, uh, when I started it, I hadn't either. And and the origin of capitalism and so forth, and you you mentioned, for example, the Dobbs Sweezy debate. So and there's the Brenner debate, and there's all right. these different debates right. about right. Um, whether it was the flow of whether it was monetary, whether it was population, population yeah. all of this. Right. So from your point of view, are those debates meaningful in terms of Europe? Um, even though they're only a small part of what was going on worldwide, or were they basically well, a waste of energy? No, not wasted energy. It's just, it's just the, it's really interesting. I don't have expertise. I don't claim expertise in the history of economic thought, but I've always been deeply interested in it. And so, you know, uh, people are struggling like we always, hum, hum, humans always have. We're struggling to make sense out of these things, right? And so just because I reject certain theoretical propositions doesn't mean that the work the people did is useless because there's a tremendous amount of empirical information. You can, you can understand, oh, I see why they argue this way. I can see why they argue this way. But give you just one example it comes right out of the price revolution stuff uh, that i did a long time ago is that the monetary theory that uh, dominated when when i was involved in the that literature was irving fisher's equation of exchange mv equals pt and so on and this velocity of money right so the idea is that if a if a silver coin comes in and it's spent once a week, it does that amount of work. But if it, if it goes from hand to hand 10 times, 
then it's doing more money work. The velocity is higher, right? And that's terrible economic theory. I mean, it's, it's no, no monetary theory today says any such thing like that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Those are flows. They're trying to take what's an accumulation and turn it into a flow because basically all of micro and macroeconomic theory is all flows based. And so they're trying to make it like that. And I'm saying, no, it's inherently, it's inherently a stock. I mean, pull, pull coins out of your pocket and they've got dates on them. You're saying that's not being currently produced. And its value doesn't depend upon whether you go buy uh, something and it exchanges hands or not. Right? No, it has to do with the what I call ownership demand, which is is I, you know, look in your your office, look in my office. Well, I'm pointed the wrong direction, but books, right? I I hold a lot of my wealth in the form of books. Uh, that's because I choose to, and I can afford to, and I choose to, and I do. And I view monies and everything else the same way. Given your wealth, what determines the optimal mix that you personally, subjectively choose to hold your wealth? That's, that's so I, I look at everything from that point of view. Now, flows come in, of course. Income, it's not like, say, well, income is unimportant. That's ridiculous. Income comes in. I have expenditures. And if the income that comes in is greater than the expenditures, then my wealth increases. By the way, when economists, they say, if, if I go buy a book, they say, that's consumption. We're called consumers, not human beings. We're not human beings. We're consumers, right? According to economists. And I'm saying, no, sorry, I read the book and it's still there. It's not consumed, right? In my definition of consumption requires that I drink a cup of coffee, or I drink, in my case, a lot of red wine. I drink, I drink the red wine, I consume it, my inventory of red wine has decreased. That's consumption. When I read a book... I'm not consuming it. It's still there. It's an accumulation, right? So in my model, there are mechanisms that increase accumulation and mechanisms that decrease. And uh, there are three, three on the supply side and three on the demand side. I call it the laws of supplies and demands. It's an awkward phrase, but standard econ, the laws of supply, singular, and demand singular, that those turn out to be just two out of the six that are in my model because I'm, I'm focusing on accumulation. One of the things that struck me when I was um, reading your work and also talking to you before, um, you mentioned that um, when you first were reading um, Emmanuel Wallerstein, who mm -hmm. is a, you know, a world, uh, theory, a world systems theorist, that right. you found it amazing and were very impressed by it. And then when you went back and read it several more times, you found yourself sort of very strongly disagreeing with it. Correct. What say, what's the key elements that you disagree with and, and why are they important? What, what's the fundamental difference? Well, I, I've actually, uh, this 
quite some time ago, I think in 84, I published an article with anti Wallerstein in the title. And then it was and then it was untranslated, I should say, rather than translated into English in one of my volumes of essays in 1996. Basically, basically, when you go under all the trappings, I mean, Waller, Wallerstein, uh, I was on sabbatical uh, uh, when I read his work super carefully. And in, in I think it was 82, I was on a Fulbright uh, in, in uh, Belgium, uh, research Ful Fulbright. And, and I, I spent almost the whole, well, the whole semester just reading that book and going to the library and looking up all the, the footnote sources. So it has the tr these great trappings and, and, and all this jargon, uh, much of which was simply terminology that was a little different, but said the same thing that Andre Gunderfrank had already said before. But, but periphery and core, people still use the, these terminology. And so what, what there, basically his, his work had two parts. One part was demolished by uh, Robert Brenner. Uh, and one of it was surplus was extracted from Eastern Europe, Poland, and so forth via the grain trade. And... And if you read uh, Brenner's criticism on that, he blows it up. And so, and so his, the only other thing propping up his first volume, Waller's thing, is the treasure coming from the Americas. And I'm saying, well, this is in my wheelhouse now, right? And so his argument was that, that the silver came, went to Spain, but then after Spain, it went to England, it went to the Netherlands and so forth. And, and he has, and other people have versions of it too, what I call, they have a Tinkerbell uh, view of silver and money, and silver and money. You know, Tinkerbell, she flies around in, in Disney and uh, this teeny thing, and everything she hits with her wand is magically turns out to be fantastic. Well, that's the way they, these people look at silver. And they say, uh, uh, even Gunderfrank, who was a friend, uh, argued that when it went to China, that was very much an anti-Wallerstein argument, but that it stimulated China. But that's just a Tinkerbell version, right? And so, and so no, it's a commodity. It goes where the market <laughs> demand for it is. Uh, no different than any other commodity. It was highly profitable to trade for certain periods of time, especially. Uh, and I want to demystify it, right? And so he, he said that, uh, Wallerstein said that, well, you had the, it's called, because of him, it's called world systems, plural, right? Systems. There was the European system. And, and, and China and Asia they were out of the picture. He explicitly states that repeatedly, right? Wrong. Sorry, you're wrong. They were integrated. And, and like I said, uh, Ken Pomerantz, I don't know whether he's right or not, but uh, Ken Pomerantz said, uh, says, no, the, uh, the, the, and other uh, experts in Chinese economic history, they say 
there was more free market activity in going on in, in China and other parts of Asia than there was in Europe. There were more restrictions in Europe. And so this, this whole thing about being a European system, it, it, that's just Eurocentrism dr dressed up a little bit because Wallerstein's background was in African history. And so, okay, so now, you, now you've, you've made, uh, you've expanded to be uh, Afro-European Afro uh, centrism. I mean, I guess it was a, an advance, but his argument didn't make sense, basically, because where the product goes, what it has to do with, it finances the Spanish empire, right? Because the profit per ounce of silver, which diminished over time, but was huge. And how did the Spanish Empire, this little country with six million people, no industrial revolution, no agricultural revolution, becomes this fierce powerhouse fighting wars in the Mediterranean against the Ottomans, fighting the English, fighting the French, fighting the Dutch, fighting an 80-year war in the Low Countries, 80 years, uh, right? And how this is impossible without without wealth. Where did that wealth came from? It came from control of the, of the, uh, the taxes, basically, on, on, on these mines. And so what I argued uh, in, uh, in the anti-Wallerstein piece is I say, I say, no, actually, the, the profits from that silver uh, financed the Spanish attack on these very capitalists that you're talking about. Not only did it not enrich them, it damn near bankrupted them. Seriously. Jeffrey Parker wrote about that a long time ago, you know, that, that it, these, these Northern Europeans, I mean, with, with the onslaught of the Spaniards fighting uh, in the Low Countries for 80 years, it was like our Vietnam except for 80 years. Uh, and and it, 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 it exhausted everybody, right? And so he's saying that the fact that the silver went there is why there was uh, this, they were pulling surplus. And I'm saying, no, you don't, he didn't even understand the, the Marxist uh, uh, distinction between the sphere of production and the sphere of circulation, right? Marx said that, that uh, wealth, surplus value is created in the sphere of production. Well, the Spaniards took a fair share of that. Uh, and, but just something, the, the wealth is not attached to the physical object. The, the, an argument that I made a long time ago goes something like this. You say, uh, let's say, let's say that you and I trade something, we barter something. And you have a chair that I like, and I've got, and I want your chair, and I've got a textile, some garment that you like. And you built the chair yourself, or had it, or had an expert uh, hired somebody to do it. And I had my slave build, make my textile, right? So we exchange, and you're happy, you're better off, I'm happy, I'm better off. The surplus, I've still got the surplus value, it's just in the form of the chair. When, when the sweater or whatever this garment is goes to you, the surplus value doesn't go with it, right? 
he, he's thinking, Wallerstein thought that somehow that surplus value actually passed with the physical uh, movement and change in ownership of the object. No, you're, you're confusing the, the, what Marx called the sphere of circulation with the sphere of production where all surplus value, that's the fundamental. I was criticized by some economists. They said, why are you using Marxist terminology and why are you, 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 you doing this? Well, first of all, I'm familiar with it, which you're not. And, and the second part is because I wanted to argue against him on his own terms. Not, not, not on mine. I, I would make the argument in a very different way. But I wanted to, to argue that he's wrong in, a, in, in his own framework. So basically, I've always thought, although he kept getting more and more famous anyway, I thought that Brenner knocked out the, the uh, Eastern grain argument, and I felt like I knocked out the, the silver argument, and there was nothing left. There was nothing left. This has been very exciting. Um, is there anything that we, I mean, there are tons of things we haven't talked about, but is there anything that you'd particularly like to say um, before we end? No, well, I mean, I guess the only one, because we're all in marketing, whether we admit it or not, right? And so, yeah, so I'm, I've been working for quite some time on, it's, it's the weirdest textbook ever, uh, but it's an economics textbook on my model. And the first chapter, though, is, is all historical applications of it in a verbal, descriptive way, because I want to attract the historians, the non-economists, and, and motivate them to read the rest of the, the, the text. But, but anyway, I am putting this all together in a, in a coherent way that is that is totally different than standard econ that I always taught in my day job. And, uh, and so I'm hoping to finish that this year and maybe it will come out next year. And so that's the advertising uh, uh, point. So it's not just, you know, some wild uh, ideas, but, but they're, the, uh, 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 I'm trying to make a very structured, logical argument. Uh, it's, it's presented not in mathematical form, but in graphs. In graphs. Mm -hmm. So I hope that people will do the work required in order to to really understand why what is different about this versus standard econ.